welcome. The Torah portion this week is called Naso. It's the second Torah portion in <clears throat> the book of Bamidbar, book of Numbers. And uh, let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher Kichanu B'mitzvotav B'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life. Our God who makes us holy with your commandments and has commanded us to engage in words of Torah. So, Naso. Uh, oh, welcome, Naomi. Parshat uh, Naso is a very long Parsha because it has a chapter in it that has 89 verses in it uh, that. Uh, <laughs> That's by far the longest in the whole Torah. Um, uh, and it's also a portion that doesn't that has sections in it that are boring, that are puzzling, that are disturbing, um, each one, and how does it all fit together? Um, there is one part of it that stands out, uh, which is this very brief section that says, about to, that says this is how Aaron, the high priest, will bless the people and thus link my name to them. Uh, and uh, Aaron is supposed to say the priestly blessing, the blessing of peace, which is the most ancient blessing prayer liturgy as that we know of in our tradition. May God bless you and protect you. May God shine God's face upon you and when. when and, and show you favor. May God's face be lifted up towards you and fill you with peace. And so that section, and then it says, and this is how you will link me, says God, to the people by being a channel of blessing. Uh, and actually we're going to make our way towards that section, but we're going to do it by looking at a section, the section that comes immediately before it, which is a description of um, of the um, um, social um, status that one can take on called being a Nazir, which in English is a Nazarite. And this was a voluntary status, a vow that any Israelite, and it says explicitly man or woman, which is really interesting can take in order to be closer to God, to be in a status of kedusha, of holiness, that is, of nearness to God. And the Nazarite um, requirements are to us are gonna seem strange, um, but, and I often don't delve too deeply into them, uh, but I went online to one of my favorite Torah teaching websites, which I've talked about before. It's called alephbeta.org. Um, I believe it's org. A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A. -E -E I believe this is it, but you, you'll be able to find it. 
Um, and I want to give give thanks and shout out and praise to this uh, the the teacher who organized this. His name is Rabbi David Foreman, F O H R M A N. I've used his teachings before in this class this year. Uh, he is a modern Orthodox rabbi in the five towns down Long Island, which is a very particular subculture of uh, religious Judaism. And I think what he's doing is exceptional because he, he's a brilliant Torah teacher, brilliant. And he's developed a whole cadre of um, other teachers who also offer things on his site. And what he's doing is he's working and working to uh, see the forest rather than get lost in the trees. Um, and he's not, he, I often don't connect with Orthodox teachers because they are citing incredible numbers of sources, all the Jewish legal ins and outs, uh, stuff that I'm not focused on as a student of Torah or as a rabbi. But Rabbi David Foreman is, is interested in pulling out um, the, the real moral, spiritual, and ethical teachings out of the text using traditional and brilliant Torah study. And I just, I wrote a note to him today. He doesn't know me, but I just wanted to thank him. Uh, he's speaking across um, the way Rabbi Sachs does. He's did. He's speaking across um, denominational boundaries, and because he's speaking to the heart of uh, what it means to be a good person, in my opinion, and what it means to be a spiritual being. So that's my words of praise for Rabbi David Foreman and his website. Um, you might want to take a look at it. He's he's perfected these. I've shown one before these these um, videos with kind of basic animation through which he tells his story. Okay, so I wanted to say that that's where all of this came from. So now we are going to look at the text of the description in the Torah in our this week's portion, which is in Numbers chapter six, <clears throat> about this 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 um, uh, status one can. Uh, take on through a vow called being a Nazarite or a Nazir. And we're gonna do a real close reading of it. And I think the insights are really terrific. So I'm gonna share my screen. Whoops, just one sec, I'm not quite ready for that. There we go. Okay, that's visible, right? Yodhevave spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Ish o Isha, anyone, man or woman. So this is a status. This may be the only status in the Torah where patriarchy is the social uh, and power structure so that in the Torah, only men can be priests. And remember the we word for priest is Kohen in Hebrew. Kohen, anyone in Kohen, that means priest. Um, here, it's explicitly not related to gender. Ki yaf, the Hebrew is very, very um, full. 
כי יפלי לנדור נדר, נזיר להזיר לאדוני. When you hear words repeating in Torah, לנדור נדר, נזיר להזיר, it's emphatic, it's... Uh, and there, so, when a man or a woman explicitly utters a Nazarite's vow, להזיר לאדוני, to set himself apart for Yodhei Okay, so this word yafli is interesting because yafli means to vow, but it also, if any of you know, um, nifla, uh, niflaot means wonders and miracles. Uh, in, in Hebrew, if you say nifla, it means like amazing. So pele is a wonder. Um, and uh, it's interesting to me that taking a vow has the same root as this wonders who. So there's, what I mean to say is there's something quite emphatic about this word. This is quite a statement word here. This is not just an ordinary promise you're making. You are doing something extraordinary. That's my interpretation of this word. Lindor neder, to vow a vow, Nazir lahazir to sanctify yourself to God. So that's how it introduces. Here's what you have to do in order to become what's called a Nazir, a Nazarite. He shall abstain. Now we're into he, but we know that that's the translation and it's referring to, to I'll just say they. They shall abstain from wine and any other intoxicant. Yayin v'sheichar, yazir, abstain. Chometz yayin v'chometz sheichar. He shall not drink vinegar of wine or any other intoxicant. I'm not sure what vinegar means there because chometz is the same word as chametz. Uh, it, it means it's some, that's what wine is. It's fermented. That's what it should say. He shall not drink fermented wine or any other fermented intoxicant. Then interestingly, neither shall he drink anything in which grapes have been steeped, nor eat grapes fresh or dried. Okay, a complete abstinence from eating anything having to do with the grape, especially fermented, and anything else fermented also. Okay, that's the first requirement. Throughout his term as a Nazarite, he may not eat anything that is obtained from the grapevine, even seeds or skin. Interesting. Next requirement. Kol yumei neder nisro, throughout the term of his vow as a Nazarite, no razor shall touch his head. Adm lo otayamim, until the fulfillment of his term. His head, his hair shall remain consecrated, kadosh, to God until the completion of his term as a Nazareth of the Lord. Gadel perasar rosho, the hair of his head being left to grow untrimmed. His or her head. Okay, so covering, uncovering your head and the word para means wild. Para means wild, untamed, untamed hair. <laughs> I think about all the ways hair 
what a what a just an unbelievable powerful part of humanness our relationship to hair is you know everywhere at all times like who dreamed this stuff up that grows out of your head it's like it's crazy so hair is um is allowed to grow is must grow wild untrimmed okay so the nazarite she can't uh drink any alcohol or anything to do with grapes and she can't she uncovers her head or he and lets it grow wild for the length of the, the as long as they are in this period of being uh of being uh sanctified to god then there's one more requirement throughout the term hold on a sec Well, uh, Ruth said, we will get to how long their term is. I think it varies. Um, it doesn't say explicitly. Uh, it's ah. a choice. They choose for how long they want to make ah, the vow. Thank you, Ellen. They choose the length of their uh, vow, a vowel. Throughout the term that the Nazarite has set apart for Yodhe he or she shall not go in where there is a dead person no contact with the dead even if his father or mother or his brother or sister should die he cannot defile himself for them he nezer elohav al rosho for the hair set apart for his god is upon his head so the word nezer is hair keep that in mind i think that's a that's not a great translation We'll find out throughout his term as a Nazarite, he is consecrated to yud heh kadosh ladonai. Okay. All right. Those are the three requirements, but we'll read more and then we're going to review it. Okay. And your questions are welcome at any time. We're a pretty small group today. If you want to unmute yourself and just shout out at me, you can do that or write in chat if you need to. Okay, so those are the three requirements for a Nazarite, a Nazarite's vow. Now, if it happens that a person dies suddenly near the Nazarite, and this is another interesting phrase, but feta pitom. Pitom means all of a sudden, and feta means a surprise. So again, the language is very strong in biblical terms. It's interesting in other traditions, says Naomi, one would shave your head, not allow your hair to grow wildly. Yes, you'll see what happens. This is a very unusual state. There's no one else in the entire community who will be going around with their hair uncovered and wild. It's the Nazarite is unique in their status. And we're going to talk about that more. Hair is supposed to be covered, tamed. I mean, think about, think about right up to this day, um, the relationship of um, very religious traditions and head coverings. Um, hair, is, hair is power, okay? And why do I say that? Uh, because, and sexual power too. Samson, the famous Samson, is explicitly identified as a Nazarite from birth. And all his strength is in the hair of his head, right? So it's very potent 
potent. Fascinating. But if during your term, someone dies near you, defiling your head of Nizro, your consecrated hair, I'm going to retranslate that for you soon. He shall shave his head. On that day, he becomes ritually pure. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make expiation on his behalf for the guilt he incurred through uh, uh, contact with the corpse. It's, guilt is also a poor word there, right? It's the, the, the um, let's see, it says chet. The, the sin, the, yeah, the desecration. Uh, but that same day, when he goes through this ritual, he shall reconsecrate his head, rededicate it to yod heh as it, for his term, and bring a lamb as an offering. The previous period shall be void since his consecrated hair was defiled. Uh, so he has to restart. It's like he touched lava, <laughs> or whatever the game is, and he has to restart his period of vow. But I don't want to make too light of it because this is actually a holy spiritual state. Um, contaminations is a good word, but yes, sin, contamin this, this kind of uh, ritual contamination is a good word. And then at the end of his term or her term, the fulfillment of his vow, he shall bring or she shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. If you came in late, this is men and women can do this, which makes it a unique status. And at their offering, they shall present these animals and a basket of matzot, unleavened bread of choice flour with oil mixed in, and unleavened wafers spread with oil and the proper meal offerings and libations. And the priest shall present them before Yudhe and offer the sin offering and the burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of well-being and together with the basket of unleavened cakes. And the priest shall offer the meal offerings and the libations. And then the Nazarite shall then shave his consecrated hair at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And listen to this. Take the locks of his consecrated hair and put them on the fire that is under the sacrifice of well-being and gratitude. What a ritual. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing it. Um, and all these actions, keep in mind, are have a clear symbolic meaning to the participants, right? We might participate in a ritual ourselves. Like when I go to communion at, when I've gone and witnessed communion at, my, at Matthew's Episcopal Church, it's like, if I am a, a completely uninformed um, um, uh, um, spectator, I see them coming up, kneeling down, he puts a little cracker in their mouth, and uh, it's like, okay, right? But what are rituals? 
They are actions that we imbue with significance. And for the participants in communion, it's incredibly meaningful. So I am, I, even though I watch, I'm a spectator to this ancient ritual, I don't, I don't make light of it because I want, I, it's very meaningful. We just have to figure out if we can get inside the meaning structure of it. Okay, so. Uh, yes, the fragrance is always significant, Joan. Uh, but burning hair smells does smell acrid. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, this is a very sensory event, isn't it? Locks of hair, animals on the fire. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after he burns the hair, the priest takes the shoulder of the ram. It actually says Zoroa, arm like God's outstretched arm. There's something, this is, I'm not sure what it means, but this is unusual in sacrificial uh, rituals in the Torah. Uh, when it has been cooked, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and place them on the hands of the Nazarite. So, on the hands of the Nazarite, al kape anazir, kapim is, is palms. Um, after his shaved, is now it always says consecrated here, knees rope. I'm going to get to that. Then the priest takes it back, raises it up, and it is a sacred donation. And everything is offered. And after that, the Nazarite may once again drink wine. It says, it could mean, and after that, the Nazarite drinks wine. I, I don't think it's necessarily may drink wine. I think it's part of the ritual. And then here we go. Such is the obligation of the Nazarite, but in the Hebrew, it's much stronger. Zot Torat Hanazir. This is the Torah, the, the sacred instructions for the Nazarite. Um, uh, Asher Yidar, Karbon Olevanai on Israel. Um, uh, except that he who vows an offering to the Lord of what he can afford beyond <laughs> his Nazarite requirements must do exactly according to the vow he has made beyond his obligation as a Nazarite. And then I'll just point out to you that the very next verse says, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, and thus shall you bless the people of Israel, say to them. God bless you and protect you. God deal kindly and graciously with you. God bestow favor upon you and grant you peace. And thus the priests shall link my name with the people of Israel and I will bless them. And that's the end of the chapter. Okay. So I, I in my, it's, I am forever going to be uh, kind of peeling away my levels of obtuseness uh, reading this text, it never occurred to me that these two sections were linked. It just seemed like this priestly blessing was plopped in there. Like, okay, I have no idea why it's there. But again, assuming that this wasn't just a random assortment of texts, which we now know is true, we'll want to think about the link of these, this instructions about the Nazir and then 
the fact that the priestly blessing comes right after it. I have a thought about it, which I'll share you later. So now, I'm gonna go back to the beginning. Um, uh, any comments or, uh, or observations or anything at all? That's what I wanted to do first is that close, just read it. Just could, could you tell us, because um, I had to join late, the actual citation that I can find in the book. It's Numbers, right? Numbers chapter six. That's what we've been reading. All righty. Okay. I really, I really like that translation of the priestly blessing because I'm always um, caught up in the face part where you're not supposed to see the face. And then it's all about the face. Ah, Panav. Yes, we'll talk more about that too later. Because Panav means face. It also means presence. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, um, yeah, very good. To be lifne someone means to be before them, to be in their presence. Uh, good. Okay, so what does Rabbi Foreman, and actually it wasn't Rabbi Foreman, it was one of his colleagues named Rivki Stern. So she was brilliant on this um, uh, video I was watching. She points out that the Nazarites instructions are basically identical to what the high priest has to do in order to be consecrated to God. For example, in verse seven, even if his father or mother or his brother or sister should die, he cannot have contact with a corpse that completely disqualifies him from closeness, that sense of, of sanctity, um, proximity to yod We know that contact with the dead contaminates, that's a good word, uh, until you can cleanse yourself ritually so that you can rejoin the, 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 the holy circle of God. So where it says that about the priest is back in um, uh, Parchat Emor, which describes a lot of the priest's requirements, where it says, in the same language, he shall not go in where there is any dead body he shall not defile himself even for his father and his mother. Okay, so the Nazarite lines up with the high priest that way. No wine or intoxicant, same language we know from back in Parsha Shmini. That's the Parsha where Aaron's sons, right after Aaron has been consecrated and goes into the Holy of Holies, and a fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. The next thing that happened is Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, want that to happen again. And they go into the Holy of Holies. And since they're not authorized to do so, the fire comes down and consumes them. And afterwards, after their death, this is God's instruction to Aaron, their father. Drink no wine or other intoxicant. You or your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting that you may not die. This is a law 
for all time throughout the ages. For you must distinguish between the sacred and the profane, the impure and the pure. So the, the high priests who serve in the inner sanctum cannot drink any intoxicant, nor can they have contact with the dead, and neither can the Nazareth. So these two conditions seem to be what it, some of the conditions required for a sense of, of um, special closeness with the divine, because this is a, a spiritual um, undertaking with these. So, um, and then the third category, if you remember, and this got really interesting yeah. to me, I never realized this before, is that um, the, uh, what does Nazir mean? What does the word, I mean, you can see why it's translated Nazarite. Nobody knows what it means in English. You don't know how to translate it. So you look up. I had fun following the teachers on, on Aleph Beta, and then I did some more reading. Okay, Nazir is a crown um, or a diadem. A zair, now it comes from the root Zion Resh. A zair is a wreath. Like you know, a um, a laurel wreath that uh, you see in ancient Greece. Um, so a zair is a wreath, mm -hmm. and a nazer is a is a crown or a diadem. So the hair, wherever it says, "Ki um, nazer Elohav al rosho," since hair set apart for his God is upon his head, should read for the crown, his, he, he's crowned with God, Nazar Elohav. The crown of God is on his head. Now, what I learned is, if you look at the instructions for how the Aaron, the high priest, is supposed to dress, it says, The Samta, I'm not showing you this verse because I have I'd have to go find it. The Samta Hamitznefet Al Rocho. And they shall put this special headdress that they've just described on Aaron's head. Binatata et Nazer Hakodesh Al Hamitznefet. And they put the sacred Nazer, which was this diadem, this this uh a beautiful piece of gold on a chain on top of the mitznefet. And it's the same word. So um, that is always crucial in Torah uh, when a connection like that is made. Not only the, the, the hair growing wild, ironically or in some fun, interesting way that I don't have the right words for, is just like the high priest whose head is always covered with a nezer, a crowning, a crowning object that has inscribed on it kadosh ladonai, holy to yodhevavke, and it says. Uh, wait, I have to find the right first. Um, ah, there we go. 
It says in verse 38 there, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead and it shall be on his forehead at all times so that he is acceptable to Yudhevate. So the, the Nazarite grows this crown of hair with the same word that the um, high priest Aaron's little diadem says, holy to, the, to God, their hair is their crown. And the Hebrew is, it makes, it makes the connection explicit. So the Nazarite gets to emulate or even become um, the high priest, as it were, in terms of one's being dedicated to God's service. The high priest, even though a lot of people might envy the high priest, um, because my goodness, they get the best cuts of meat and they're right there with God all the time. The high priest is almost gives up his individuality in order to be the, em the emissary representative, of, symbolic representative of the people close to God. It is an intense spiritual calling that requires an absence of ego. And so it really, it, in that sense, you're giving yourself up to the service of God. That's what the Nazarite also does. But in this ancient society of our ancestors, the priesthood was hereditary. You could not become a Kohen. And, uh, and yet the society seems to have included, not seems to, clearly included a category for spiritually um, longing people to be close to God, to identify themselves as such, and to enter a period of, of intense spiritual dedication. That's what a Nazarite was. In other cultures, you, you see these people also dressed in monk's robes or all the other ways that you can consecrate yourself to God. This was the, our ancestors in the time of the Torah way of doing that. And everything they did paralleled the priest's activities. Um, it also says, interestingly enough, about the priest. I remember that word para means wild to grow wild. So in, um, let me find the right citation. There it is. The priest, the high priest on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been ordained to wear the vestments, all the getup that I was describing, the headgear, everything, Lo ifra et rosho lo ifra. He shall not bear his head and let his hair grow wild. So here we are, kind of taking a peek into this ancient culture and trying to figure out um, uh, what this all symbolizes. Um, 
the the Nazarite is some is is a is a intense beautiful status. Now there are a couple of nice comments here. Gail said, "Are there special people or rabbis make this crown?" That's a good question. The crown is made by, in the Torah, the master craftsman Bitzalel. Bitzalel uh, and his is someone who knows how to who has the, an incredible gift for discerning design and creating. Um, and so that there are in fact no rabbis in the Torah. Rabbis don't even emerge as a, um, um, a role in Judaism until after the Torah has long been codified and a new cast, a, a new category of people arrive who interpret the Torah. Uh, so it was Bitzalel who was assigned to make these holy objects. And Naomi says, in a way, it sounds like choosing to become a renunciate, to be more holy and spiritual, but it doesn't touch on sexual abstinence. Well put. Yes, it's a kind of renunciation. And yet there is no sexual abstinence in the Torah. That has, that interestingly, that has never been a Jewish category. The common understanding of that is because it says in the first commandment in the Torah is given to, uh, is given to, the, to the first humans to be fruitful and multiply. But I can't go much deeper than that other than say that there is, there is, no, there is no vow of sexual abstinence in Jewish uh, tradition. Um, but it is, it is a renunciative, uh, um, a, cl a clear role of someone who gives up um, the same things that the high priest gives up with this interesting um, counterpoint of the crown, the golden diadem versus the crown halo of hair. It's fascinating, isn't it? Um, especially when you think about shaving all that hair off and then putting it on the altar at the end. I, I can't describe it exactly, but it really strikes me. Blaise said, thanks. I was thinking of Catholic priests' vow of celibacy. Also wondering if Lent evolved where people take some vow to renounce something. All the above ways to be closer to God. This is a very interesting thing. As someone who grew up in uh, and never really absorbed renunciation as a path, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sort of yes and sort of guy, I guess. We know in every tradition that I'm aware of, there are paths of renunciation where you fast for a long time, where you give a vow of poverty, where you go on a quest and leave everything behind, where you, and these are all all I would say universal human impulses that are designed to bring us a heightened spiritual awareness. Um, or as Blaise said, ways to be closer to God. Um, so now a couple more things about that word, um, zer and nazir. So zer I said means a wreath. And nazir means a diadem or a crown. But interestingly in Hebrew, 
Zar means a non-priest or a foreigner, a stranger, an alien. Zar means strange in modern Hebrew. And Avodah Zarah means false, means idolatry. So when Nadav and Avihu enter with the strange fire that causes their demise, the actual Hebrew word is Esh Zara. So is there some relationship between the Nazir as a non-priest? Because Esh Zara means non, would mean I would say in that context, they brought unsanctified fire. Um, Paul says, wasn't 40 years in the wilderness a kind of renunciation? Well, it, it wasn't willingly chosen, Paul. It was enforced from the outside. So I think it has a different quality. Um, though it is understood as a period of, 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 of purification, as it were. And Ruth says, it seems this would suit a lot of people. Are there groups practicing living as a Nazarite? Did this formally come to an end? Well, I can tell you from my modest amount of reading on this Ruth, that like all of the priestly and sacrificial related rituals of Judaism, when the temple was destroyed, the practice of being a Nazarite also ended. But it's also known from historical documents. And again, this was a very light reading of mine, but uh, I, I kind of gleaned enough this morning that there are on the record Jews in the, in the early, you know, in the first century BCE who were known as Nazarites. There was apparently a, um, a convert to Judaism, a woman convert whose son returned from battle and who's named as someone who took a vow as a Nazarite, a woman in gratitude for her son's safe return from battle. So this quality of Naz, this category of person was alive and well while the temple stood, but it all came to an end. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, it would be interesting to think if we have any parallels today in Jewish practice, not so much uh, unless you just devote yourself to study seems to be the way that uh, it really um, replaced it. On the other hand, there are many stories of, um, especially Hasidic stories about holy men who also lived extremely ascetic lives. Ah, great question. Uh, uh, was Jesus of Nazareth a Nazarite? No, uh, that's a great question. Um, he comes from uh, a town called Natsrat with a tzadi, not a Zion. And so even though Nazareth gets translated with a Z into English, it's a different word in Hebrew. Um, very interesting question. However, um, there are some who think that John the Baptist was a Nazarite because of his wild appearance. Um, and there's, there's good evidence that someone like John the Baptist who was clearly uh, on a mission to bring people into a renewed, bring Jews into a renewed relationship with God 
by dunking them in the river and having them be reborn into a, as, as it were, into a new identity of closeness with God, that he might have been a Nazarite. And he wore a hairy mantle and he was, he was a, yeah, he had an appearance of a wild man. Um, so not Jesus, but uh, John the Baptist might very well have taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, so the practice was alive and well until the beginning of the diaspora. The priesthood, which was hereditary, anyone named Cohen or son of Cohen continued to this day to have an elevated status in the Jewish world. They get called up for the first aliyah in a traditional synagogue. Um, they are asked to give the priestly blessing in synagogues. But I'm thinking that the Nazarite, since it was a status that was temporary and not hereditary and couldn't be fulfilled anymore because there was no way to fulfill your term as a Nazarite since the temple was destroyed, simply uh, faded away. Yes, Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist, but there's no evidence that Jesus took the Nazarite vow. There's, there's, he drinks at feasts, he's drinking wine, he's, there's no evidence that Jesus was a Nazarite, whereas there, he's from Nazareth, which is unrelated to the Hebrew word Nazir. Um, whereas John the Baptist, there's some evidence that he might have been in that category. Um, but Jesus, it's pretty clear, Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist from my reading. Okay, so now, oh goodness, time's rushing along. So there's a couple of um, uh, other things I wanna share with you. I wanna reiterate the strangeness and the wonderfulness of the fact that this could be a man or a woman. It provides us an opening into the strict patriarchal hierarchy of the, of the civilization of the, the Bible. That men and women both could achieve this status. I think that's really strong and worth exploring further. Uh, this, not just any status, but a comparable status to the high priest in reference to one's closeness to God. I think that is a, um, a teaching that, that should be elevated out of all this. Um, that this one, this was really equal opportunity and the most, it's so cool. Another point I wanna make, and then I'll read uh, Paul's comment. Um, uh, okay, brain. Oh, yes. This idea that any Israelite could, even though they were excluded from the hereditary priesthood, could choose a path of action as, as a renunciate to who wanted to be close to God I can imagine there might be somebody who does this just because they want everyone to see them and see how holy they are, but that's true throughout human history, right? A lot of people put on performances uh, of, of, um, of righteousness and piety. But on the other hand, 
This is a real project and a sacred vow so that the Israelite who want, yearns, whatever, whatever's in them, that yearns to be close to God, there was a mechanism in, in Torah society for them to attain that. I think that's quite beautiful. Uh, let's see, and Paul wrote, to groom, cut hair is a sign you are informing, working in society. Mm -hmm. A Nazarite completely removed from society compared to Indian rishis who lived in the forest, never cut their hair and able to develop, develop special powers or cities. I agree with you, Paul. Um, this is a spiritually elevated, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, it's a spiritual journey. And uh, the, the, the Nazarite identified themselves as being on this journey. Rob says, accessible and democratic. Yes, here's a remarkably accessible and democratic practice in the midst of all of this description about the priest. Oh, uh, Naomi says, it's interesting about the dead being a form of spiritual contamination. Is that because of bacteria and lack of cleanliness in the ancient world? They have rituals similar to the Shomer and Sever Kadisha at that time. I, the best I've gotten on this, Naomi, is I've kind of tried to just contemplate it all through the Bible, is that God is the source of life. And to be in the proximity of the source of life, you have to have not had contact with death. Um, and so there's no indication that it has to do with, uh, with bacteria or germs. I don't think they were aware of, particularly aware of that in their, in their practices. And the other thing that it's also related to is that you're also not allowed to have contact with blood outside the body because blood belongs to God and is considered to be, as it were, the physical uh, source of life. Um, so blood belongs to God. When the blood drains out, you have death. And I can't do much better than that right now. But the distinct, the distinguishing line is clear. It's not that being with the dead is bad. It's that after you've touched death or been in the precinct of blood or death, you have to go through a rehabilitating process in order to be reintegrated into the God of life. You're not being punished, nor are you being excommunicated. You just have to go, go you have to do the process of, of rejoining the community. That's the best really I can accurate, do. Jonathan. Pardon me? It's accurate what you're saying. It's, it, it's about the God of life and not, um, it's not bacteria. It's not all. Yeah, yeah. All it's an understanding of what it means to be. In, and it's in, a spiritual condition where you're connected with a different focus when you're around death. Right. Then, um, then the, you know, the everyday focus where you're ritually pure. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I unfortunately have to go. Oh, I'll miss you. I'll see you next week. I hope. Um, Naomi, it's also animal blood. That's why um, kosher food 
is drained of blood. We are not permitted to eat blood according to some of the most ancient Jewish laws because the blood is the life force and it belongs to God. That's what it says. And blood is the nefesh, the life force of the creature and God is the source of the life. So the blood belongs to God. We get to enjoy the fruits of that life force. We get to consume the meat, but not the blood. And that's, that's, that is the ancient Jewish understanding. It's also fascinating and another whole other linguistic lesson to explore that we've talked about before that dam is blood, dalid mem, dam. The human is Adam, Adam. And uh, sometimes I think that the dam that makes us alive on a physical level and the Aleph, which is understood to be the vivifying un, un, um, uh, um, ineffable divine energy combined to make a living being, you know, a living conscious being. Adam, and then we all come from the Adama, which is the earth. So there's a lot in there. And again, this is how Hebrew works, um, which is a beautiful thing. Okay, so the last point I wanna make, and I want us to speculate about, is that this whole description of the um, Nazarite, is contiguous with the priestly blessing. This is the Torah of the Nazir, the Torah of the Nazir, who uh, um, takes upon himself this vow. And then it says immediately after, and Yodhevave spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. Say to them, May God bless you and protect you. May God deal kindly and graciously with you. And may God bestow his favor upon you and grant you peace. And thus they shall link my name, says God, with the people of Israel, and I myself will bless them. The priest is the conduit of divine energy, blessing the people. And I agree with Paul, everyone, anyone can become like a priest. That's what I take today from realizing that these sections are contiguous. The Nazarite who is an anybody, a man or a woman, anybody can by, can become like a priest, like the Kohen. And if we can become like the Kohen, then we too can be channels of blessing. Because being this channel of blessing is a spiritual um, aspiration. It's what anyone I know who has wanted to be close to God wants to be and become, is a channel of blessing. And so for the first time in my life, I, I, I've um, uh, discerned a connection between that section about the Nazarite, which I've always kind of like sort of gotten, 
And the fact that it comes right before the description of how you link your name, how you link God's name to the people of Israel. And Paul says, a Nazarite is like someone getting a PhD in priestliness. I like that. I like that. Very good. Very good. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. Again, I want to thank uh, the Aleph Beta people for, for, for guiding me in this direction. And um, I'll stop the screen share. And uh, may we all be blessed to be channels of blessing. We don't have to have special status in order to do it. We can take a vow on ourselves and aspire to that. And then remember, if we mess up, we start again. It said, if you come in contact with the dead, you just, okay, you just take the vow again and try again. There's no statute of limitations on it either. So I think that's a marvelous new understanding for me. And I appreciate you coming and, and uh, so I could share with you. And Paul Bloom says, good hair corresponds to strong kidneys to your life essence. Well, Paul, you can talk about good hair. I'm going to head in a different direction with that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, John, 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 it was at the beginning of the chat, uh, yes. Joan. Uh, I'm sorry you were late. No, olivebeta.org. Uh, and if you scroll up the chat, if you know how to do that, here, I'll type it in again. You'll enjoy their site. Okay. There we go. Uh-huh. 